I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, it's another day of quarantine and, of course, our social distancing of 1,400 miles. You know, I always like to be in person with you. I'm looking at you through the computer, and you just don't look the same. I always like our little interaction when we're together. So uh, I'm hoping that this particular situation is resolved soon. We can get back to being in the same space while we're doing our Flight Safety Detectives podcast because, you know, it's just not the same when all I get to do is look at that beautiful shaved head of yours on Zoom. And the background you've been using, I love the background, John. I mean, it looks like you're sitting at the beach. Problem is, you become the headless horseman because your head just disappears and all I see is your body sometimes. So it is entertaining for me, but makes our interaction a little more difficult because I never know when you're ready to say something or not. Well, technology. Yeah, I like the background because it makes me feel good compared to what I get looking out the window here. You know, it's been raining here yeah. the whole month. It's been raining at least part of the day. Every once in a while, the sun pokes out for a little bit, but not long. Uh, the last few days out here in Colorado have been 70-plus uh, degrees, sunshine, blue sky. We're supposed to get snow in a couple of days, but for the most part, it's been, uh, you know, spring, summer beach weather here. <laughs> so... It is nice, the fact that the weather's nice, and I do have a little bit of time. Bad thing is, is that I look out the window, and the weather is nice, and it takes me away from earning a living. It is one of those challenges. Uh, it's nice to be home with the family, but then again, sometimes it's quite difficult because uh, you're locked in the same place. <laughs> it does make for a challenge. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I can't complain. I am locked up in here. I hardly get out at all. Grocery store. Uh, mostly, but I just don't, don't want to get sick, so I'm staying away from everybody, including my family, my kids, everybody. Yeah. Well, the one thing that uh, we're still seeing a lot of discussion about, of course, is the airline business and the, the just total disaster that aviation is going through right now with regard to the stay-at-home order and the social distancing and things like that. And you and I have talked about these issues in previous podcasts, but now we have another issue, and that is that there is airplane and, and aviation activity still taking place. That is, aircraft are flying, even though they're in limited numbers, and we're still having accidents and incidents. But the question is, who's investigating them? We know that the NTSB and the FAA, who are primarily responsible for those investigations, have a stay-at-home order with their folks. They've decided not to respond. But as you and I know, in our afterlife, that is, as experts, when we do our accident reconstruction activities, Unlike being with the board where we responded immediately, had great information, could track down witnesses, and really get unpolluted facts, conditions, and circumstances, by delaying now the response to going to an accident scene, are we losing, is the NTSB and the FAA losing valuable information that, one, may not be recovered when they do get back to work, two, is that information going to be limited in scope and then unfortunately result in a very generic or not a very detailed probable cause? And three, 
is aviation safety being compromised because that information is no longer being collected in a timely manner. And by the time the investigators do try to collect it, it really doesn't have the same value because it doesn't have the same substance. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Timeliness is next to godliness in investigations. It's very perishable, the information. You know, and part of the reason is that you have people's attention after an accident. So if you have a small company or even a large company, airline, the the CEOs, the decision makers, you have their attention immediately after an accident. If you wait a year, they're long past that. They've gone on because they have challenges running their business and the accident just is yesterday's news. So the quicker we can get out our initial findings and the quicker we can uh, help steer the industry towards a safer operation, the more success the NTSB has. And just letting the information get stale doesn't serve any useful purpose. Well, the guest we have today on the, on the phone with us is a, both a friend and a colleague of mine, Jason Lacassic. He spent a number of years at one of the uh, primary general aviation engine manufacturers and uh, did a stint at the FAA. So he's seen both the private sector and, of course, the public sector being that the work that he did at the FAA as an investigator. But when he was with the engine manufacturer, he was a party representative investigator. That is, he responded to accidents and incidents at the beck and call of the NTSB to provide a level of expertise that the board didn't have. That's that's the beauty of the party system. They they can call the manufacturers and anybody else that they need to provide subject matter expertise on a particular product component part or whatever. And in this regard, Jason filled the role as an FAA inspector. So he was responsible for looking at the nine areas of responsibility that the FAA is charged with when they do investigate. But again, as a manufacturer's representative, he was able to bring that subject matter expertise in the operation of the engine, its its construction, component parts, its you know the engineering that went into it, and things like that. Now the question is, under these trying times, with the board not responding, and or even the FAA not responding to accidents, and then on top of that, the manufacturers, because of this economic impact, they are cutting back. We've seen this trend develop over a long period of time, but now it's come to a real hard stop where because of uh, the economic crunch induced by the coronavirus, the stay-at-home orders and the lockdown and things like that, the restrictions and travel, what is that going to do not only for the industry as a whole, but how is that going to shape in an unfavorable way? what the NTSB and the FAA are doing because they're not going out. They're not getting that valuable information right now. And now when they do go back out, because the manufacturers have scaled back their air safety departments and that kind of thing, they're not going to be out there on scene to provide that valuable expertise. So I want to welcome in Jason Lacassic. I know you, uh, you're living the life up in Alaska. I'll tell you, you know, I hope the weather is good up there so that we can make John even more jealous. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's crystal clear. I just checked my digital thermometer. It's 27, and I still got two feet of snow. There you go, John. That makes me feel better. (laughs) At least least I don't have to shovel rain. (laughs) Well, welcome to the show, Jason. As I said earlier, you know, you and I have been friends for a long time. You you have the benefit of working both the, the public and the private sector, so you bring a lot of expertise to this conversation. John and I, you know, we're all investigators. And when it comes to responding to an accident, we all know the value of getting there as soon as possible because there is so much perishable information that you either have a very difficult time reconstructing or in some cases you lose it forever and you never will be able to recover that information. And then, of course, that plays into the long-term uh, goal of the NTSB and trying to determine a probable cause so that they can enhance aviation safety. Well, if we lose that, then we're in real trouble. Absolutely. And, you know, John, thanks for having me on the show. I sure appreciate it. And, 
Yeah, Greg, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, we've done this for a long time, and we, we, we find that doing what we do now and going back and trying to put everything back together after the wreckage has been, the accidents happen, it's been picked up and moved. It's been examined by the board and the FAA. Then it's picked up and moved to a storage facility. And then it's picked up out of the storage facility and moved down into a hangar for examination. Then it's put back into the storage facility. Then it's put back out for an examination. And by the time that we, we get to have a look at all of these things, it's, it's been picked up and moved and all that perishable information has been touched, tweaked, changed two, three, four, five times. So being able to get out there and get that initial information on site is is extremely important, you know, to, to just get basic things like lap settings and ailerons and, you know, where the cables connect, where the bell cranks there, where the, you know, actuators, you know, where were the trim settings? You know, that that's very hard stuff after the after the recovery company goes out there and cuts the whole airplane up with a sawzall and puts it on the back of a truck. It, it takes a lot more work to try to put all of that stuff together. And I've seen, I'm sure you're probably still watching the runs right now. You know, there was a air tractor accident yesterday in Texas. You know, serious injury accident. And there was a day, two days ago, there was a fatal glider accident in Florida. It's very hard to try to conduct an accident investigation over the phone by telling a police department or a sheriff's unit what you're looking for and how to do it. It's it's really critical to, to have boots on the ground and to be able to go through your checklists and be able to investigate and collect all that perishable information. Yeah. And the, and the big thing, Jason, is, of course, when we're looking for anomalies, that is mechanical malfunctions, failures, we're looking for those things in an aircraft that could have failed. Now, all of a sudden, without the investigators responding immediately to actually document the wreckage before it is disturbed, you are going to have, as you said, the recovery company cutting the wings off, cutting the tail off, putting it on a flatbed, moving it. Now the investigators go out there two, three, four months later, and they don't know whether or not that that damage that they're looking at was accident related that could have been a cause or a contributing factor or as a result of the salvage company dismantling the aircraft so that they could move it and and you and i have that problem we try to reconstruct all of that we we go back to day one we get as much information as we can early on from first responders and the ntsb and the faa because when we see it there is damage there, and it's like, how did that happen, and did that happen initially? And so you and I spend a lot of time going back and looking at early information to try and verify or validate it. Well, now, if we have no early information, now there's no basis for us to be able to go back or the NTSB to go back because they don't know what it originally looked like because they never went. And that makes it that much harder and that much more labor-intensive for us to try to figure that out. And the NTSB and the FAA, because they're going to be in the same position. They're calling a salvage company. They're saying, okay, move the wreckage, put it there. And in two or three months when we're back in operation and we're traveling, we'll come down and look at it. Well, I mean, as much as all of us investigators want to believe we're pretty good, there are some of us that are a hell of a lot better than others. And unfortunately, you and I and John have seen of late, especially, some of the very generic reports and probable cause statements. You and I look at a lot of engines and stuff, and when we're looking at it, we typically, especially when we're doing it from a litigation standpoint, and I know a lot of people will go, well, you're doing it because it's litigation. No, we're looking at the facts, conditions, and circumstances. We've developed more information or information that the safety board and or the FAA should have developed, and we're able to find out what caused the accident. But their probable cause statement says engine failure for unknown reasons. That's the most frustrating thing, and John and I have had this conversation as well, that these probable cause statements of late have become very generic. And when you look at the fact that your primary mission as an agency, and TSB and partially the FAA, is to develop all the facts, conditions, and circumstances, identify a probable cause, and enhance aviation safety through the safety recommendation process. When you come up with a generic probable cause that says engine failure for unknown reasons, how are you enhancing aviation safety? What's going on now 
with these cutbacks and a manufacturer's participation now with the NTSB. Given the, the beauty of the party system, manufacturers were able to go out, participate, give that subject matter expertise. But under these economic times, is that going to be sustained going forward? Yeah, you, you bring up a very good question. We, we, we can already see just kind of like similar to what's going on with the airlines and the retractions and the, and the companies uh, that are folding and filing bankruptcy and things. Uh, air safety departments as a whole are retracting. You know, about 16 years ago, roughly or so, back 2004, 2005 range, there was a huge push in the manufacturing sector for accident investigation, aviation safety inspectors, you know, engineers get out there, the party system being involved. There was a huge push to to get a lot of people involved. And so a lot of organizations brought in a lot of people. And I was part of that first big hiring wing, if you will, of 2004. And I was able to, to get a job with the manufacturer. And, and there was a lot of investigators out there. There was a lot of people day-to-day investigating accidents. But since then, and over the last 16 years, it's kind of tapered off where as, as retirements have happened and people have aged out and they've just the, the companies have just elected to, to not backfill those positions. And so air safety departments have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, and companies have decided to do more with a little bit less. And then they've made decisions to do less traveling and to do less accident investigation on site and more assistance on the phone. And so now we come up to to the coronavirus and COVID-19, and, and now there's an economic impact. And so some of the context that we have in the field, you know, this is directly impacted a lot of aviation companies. And some of those companies, some of those manufacturers have already begun the process of laying off or have already laid off employees in all of these groups. And so as this moves forward, it what's going to happen is as aviation comes back online, if you will, over the next six months, there's just going to be less available resources at the manufacturing side to assist the FAA, who's showing up to most of the accidents, and the NTSB to assist them with manufacturer expertise. It's just going to become more difficult because there's going to be a lot less expertise there to spread out over the whole system. The accidents are still going to continue. There's just going to be less assistance from the manufacturers from a standpoint of just not having the personnel. And one of the big issues is the fact that the NTSB and the FAA utilize manufacturers, their respective expertise in their facilities to do a lot of post-accident examinations. We know from the engine side of the house, the engines are shipped back down to the manufacturer. Why? Because they have all the tooling, they have all the engineering expertise, they have the test cells, they can do the dissection of the engine itself under you know very sterile circumstances. Well, now, if those opportunities aren't available to the NTSB and they're going to take it to Joe Schmuckatelli's engine shop, you don't maybe have that level of expertise. You have more generic expertise. You don't have anybody that's really a subject matter expert on a specific engine. They're just a general run-of-the-mill engine guy. John, one of the things that I think from your perspective is what's that going to do to the quality of these post-accident examinations of component parts and things like that, where there is a suspected failure or at least a malfunction that may have caused or contributed to the accident. That, that has severe impact on the outcome. You know, as you were talking about the, the investigations, I was thinking about one that I did years ago. Fortunately, there was no fatal, but the airplane was totally destroyed. And it involved a fuel control on a, a turbine engine. And because we took it to a facility that had all the expertise in overhauling that particular unit, we learned that there was a service bulletin issued many years earlier that had a, a certain hole drilled on an angle instead of straight through. So preloaded a shaft. And the difference was only, if my memory serves me right, it's 50 thousandths of an inch. I mean, it was really tiny, the difference. But as a result of that work not being accomplished in whatever shop they sent that piece to, we repeated an accident that occurred, you know, 25 years ago. So having that expertise in those shops, having the information available to all of those shops to do the work is important. But, you know, it's sometimes just putting out a service bulletin and, and maybe it's not the clearest service bulletin in the world, or maybe it uh, is not clear for effectivity. Does it affect all the parts or just certain parts? Uh, all of that's important, and you'll lose that 
and, and when you start getting further and further away from the manufacturers themselves or their approved repair stations or service centers. Yeah, and Jason, when you would go out as a manufacturer's representative, what I mean, I know that you had your areas that you looked at that the manufacturer would typically record, but what was the the information flow like between you and either the NTSB and or the FAA when it came to not only providing what you see at the accident site, but the transference of information. One of the biggest issues that has come up over the last 50 years is that the manufacturers send a representative out there. They're going to cover their product. They're going to try and hide stuff from the NTSB or the FAA to protect themselves. Is that really true? No. I mean, you hear that, that that's, that's something that's been thrown around forever, that that's one of those things. And that's just, that's just not how the, the systems work. And that's just not how the actual investigation works. I mean, if we, if we were to take it, let's just say we take an investigation where the NTSB doesn't actually come on site, but I'm assisted with an FAA gentleman, for instance, which happened quite often. We'd, we'd be in the middle of nowhere in the middle of Arkansas, and we'd be out in the woods on a mountain you know, doing an inspection, we, we, we would have a look, we would look at the on-site, we would conduct the on-site portion of the investigation, we would collect all the perishable information that we would get, that would be converted over into a, a, a report slash notes via the FAA inspector, and then the FAA inspector would take all of the information that we got, the FAA isn't hiding anything or redacting anything or not sending anything, they would record what we would do and all the information would flow back to the the investigator. So we would never do an investigation because I represented an engine manufacturer. I would never, we never inspected the product by ourselves. You were never there by yourself. So sometimes there would be a need where the records would be removed from whatever the location was or whatever the accident site was. And the engine would go to, to one spot and the airframe would go to another spot just for an ease of use of storing it or moving it around or to put it in the shade out of the rain, whatever the circumstances are, because every one of these is, is different. Somebody was always there. An FAA inspector was there with you. A police officer was standing there with you. And the NTSB would stand there and they would assist with you while you're doing different things and checking for continuity and, and looking at the inspections at the same time while writing notes. So the idea that we, we purposely were out finding things that, that we weren't saying about. That just doesn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen the whole time I was there. So it's been said before. I've never seen it. Never witnessed it. Never went to the hundreds and hundreds of on-site accident investigations that have been. Not once did anybody try to do that. What do you think now is going to happen with the quality of these investigations if the manufacturers don't have the ability to participate, not because they don't want to, it's because they don't have the manpower. They've scaled, they've, they've restructured their organization to streamline it because they don't have the financial resources now to support an air safety department. I know that the NTSB will try and make a phone call and talk to somebody at the factory and say, hey, we need this or we need that. But it's not the same as having somebody on site to actually see it and say, that's normal, that's not normal. You're absolutely right, Greg. And that goes a long way. Because if you can be at the site and you can take that five seconds to make that decision, normal or not normal, you don't spend six months chasing down a road where you think or someone thinks something's abnormal just to find out six months later, oh, no, that was normal. But had somebody been there, it would only take us five seconds to determine that versus yeah. all of the time, energy, and expense to try to figure it out later on. And you and I have been at enough inspections where we've looked at stuff well after the fact going, well, wait a minute here. That looks bad, but was it really bad at the time of the accident? Because the aircraft, like you were talking about, has been manhandled so many times from the time it was removed from the accident site, put in storage, pulled out of storage, put out for another examination, put back into storage, up and down, banged around with a forklift or dragged across a hangar floor. It's very, very difficult. And now if the NTSB and the FAA, who are the official organizations responsible for collecting the best available information so that they can determine a probable cause and enhance aviation safety, how are they going to be able to do 
that level, that thorough and methodical investigation if they aren't out there immediately. You and I have been around. I teach acts investigation. I talk about the fact that you got to get to witnesses early on because the stories change. They get embellished. People forget things. People don't care. They don't give you the details. They don't want to get involved anymore. They would have talked to you if you had showed up day one. But now, eh, you know, it's six months later. I don't remember anything. I mean, all of those things not only compromise the quality and credibility of the investigation, but what does that do to the manufacturer? Because if there is a problem, how are they going to know about the problem? You hit it right on the head, Greg. You know, just one of the best examples I can give for that is an airplane that goes down in salt water. So it goes down in salt water. It's completely intact. It gets retrieved, floated, and moved to a facility. The longer that you wait to look at it because of the corrosion and the damage that the ocean and the salt water does to it, the faster the perishable information disappears. Components corrode. Things fall apart. So you have to be there as soon as possible. And you cross your fingers that somebody was brave enough to take a, a garden hose with fresh water and rinse it off. So it slows the process down a little bit. But if you can't get there as fast as you can get there to have a look as soon as possible, that information just it just starts disappearing. And then you get a point, you know, when finally everybody gets on the same page and three months down the road, we're okay to go look at the airplane. We show up and we're like, okay, well, the engine doesn't rotate because it's completely corroded together. All the accessories are basically gone because the saltwater corrosion damage. And so it makes it very hard for, for you to step up and to say, you know, this is exactly what happened. Here's the issue and here's why it happened. Well, I can't tell you that the fuel manifold wasn't a problem. I can't tell you that it was it was not a gas escalator issue because it's full of sand. I can't tell you that it's not, you know, so it makes things a lot more difficult as you as you go down the road, the longer you wait. So perishable information is absolutely critical. And, and you and I, you hit it right on the head about the eyewitnesses. It's very important to try to follow up to get all of that eyewitness data. Because until you get out and ask the question and, and you talk to Jane and Jane says, you know, you talk to Jane and Jane said, well, you know, I saw Tim and Bob and Tim and Bob were down at the other end and they saw it too. You know, and then you go run down Tim. Oh, yeah. Well, Chris, you know what? Chris, he was at the other end of the runway. And he got a video of it. So until, until you can get out there and the boots on the ground and do the interviews and get, you don't know what rock you're going to turn over and what additional evidence that you're going to be able to collect. And as time goes on, Tim, he's now moved, so he doesn't live there anymore. He's in another state, and nobody has his phone number. And it just makes it more difficult to track down and get that information when you get it. Timeliness is key. Well, the thing that has driven me nuts, and John and I have had this conversation, and that is you, when you were with the FAA, you received biohazard training, correct? Absolutely. When you were with the manufacturer, did you receive any level of biohazard training? Absolutely. It's a recurrent yearly training that you have to go through to include respirators and masks and, and facial apparatuses and eye protection and the whole thing. And when I was with the NTSB, we received biohazard training. I used to carry a poopy suit. I still have four of them in my office now. When John well, came to work for the board, he got biohazard training. But John came from an airline where he was working around biohazards all the time, especially if you were having to crawl into a fuel tank or anything else, you, you understood those kinds of, of hazards and you were properly trained for it. The other part of that is when I was with the NTSB, whenever there was a government shutdown, a lot of times the board was exempt from that shutdown because we were determined to be an essential agency for the purpose of accomplishing a safety mission. All of a sudden now, this stay-at-home order and this government, you're not essential, so you don't, you don't have to travel. I find that not only ridiculous, I find that it's a disservice to the flying public and to aviation as a whole, only because the fact is, is that every investigator has been trained in biohazards. They take a poopy suit with them, okay, so they don't fly on an airplane. They drive to the accident site. They got their investigators spread all over the countryside now working out of their homes. They should be able to – they know what the hazards are. They, they can put on the poopy suit and go do an investigation. They can maintain social distancing. I don't understand why they aren't doing their job, and I've talked to John about it, 
And, you know, this just spools me up because there is no reason. It's one thing if they weren't trained and they didn't know about biohazards and they put themselves in a position of jeopardy. That's one thing. But every investigator has been trained to biohazards. And in fact, every time we're at an accident site, the investigator in charge is supposed to declare what areas of the wreckage are considered biohazard for the purpose of wearing protective gear. And I just don't understand the rationale why these investigators can't respond to an accident. They have the proper equipment. They know what the social distancing is. They can still accomplish their on-scene investigation. Yeah, they may not be able to go interview every single witness, but at least they can track them down and get some generic information while they're on scene via telephone or Zoom and that kind of stuff, rather than wait six months when you won't know if John or Tim or Bill or Chris exist. One of the things that we didn't talk about is the other things that we find on investigations that really had nothing to do with the probable cause. I can remember back, in fact, to 1972 when I did an accident up in, in Rochester for the airline that I worked for. On scene, we found some damage to the airplane. In looking at it, we saw where we were supposed to have accomplished an inspection, but the details that they had in the, in the ins inspection document didn't call out to look at certain areas, and we were finding problems in that area. So we, we brought that back. Again, it's got nothing to do with the accident. We brought it back. They went out and looked at a bunch of other airplanes and found the same problems on other airplanes. And then they ended up doing a, a fleet campaign to go out and inspect every airplane. And then they changed the paperwork so that that damaged area was included in the inspection that they thought was catching everything. Do you think that if the manufacturer had the ability to go out, I know that the NTSB is always in charge of the investigation now, or if they delegate it to the FAA. I know that just from, you know, my experience with a variety of manufacturers, they would still love the opportunity to go out there because they know the value of that information. Because if there is a product issue, they need to get that out in a timely manner to their customers. And that's always the goal for going out and, and doing the assistance with them, you know, to assist us having technical knowledge of the product and being able to assist with the NTSB with answering the questions. But yet, was this a brand new product? Did it just ship? Was it just installed? Is there a problem with it? Is it something, is, is it a core? Is it a foundry issue? Is it a, is it a metallurgy issue? Is, is there some other issues with parts that we have on the shelf or parts that we're currently shipping that we need to look at, that we need to stop the shipping? We need to recall the parts. We need to examine. That. That's one of the, the key questions of, of trying to go out and having a look and doing the assistance is determining, is there potentially an ongoing issue, an aviation safety issue? Is there a safety issue? Manufacturers don't go into manufacturing aviation components because they want to build something that crashes. They want to build a quality, high-performance product and part. So they always want to have the highest level of safety possible. So if there's some sort of issue, like John talked about earlier, about the about the 50,000 drilled shaft that was slightly off, if there's a tooling issue or a drill or, or a drill head or a piece of equipment that is a little dull and isn't as sharp and it's causing a separate angle on a on a machine surface, which, which isn't allowing it to see correctly, uh, there's probably other components that have that exact same issue. So being able to track that down as fast as possible is really key and, and does enhance aviation safety by trying to figure out if there is something wrong. And I know that, again, the three of us at various times have talked to each other about, look, the NTSB, they always carry a backlog of accidents. And the, one of the frustrating things for me on this side, I knew what it was like when I worked there because as a supervisor in an office, I was responsible for making sure that the investigators did the investigation. It was effective. It was efficient. They turned that report around and got it out. The board's got a hellacious backlog of accidents. I've, I've been working accidents. A couple of them are very simple in nature, but it's been two, three, even four years before they turn out a report. And, and, when I was at the board, and I know that both John and I'm sure you, Jason, heard it, everybody loves to go out and kick 10. What they hate is coming back and having to write the report. And next thing you know, they stack up on someone's desk and, and that kind of thing. 
what I would love to know what the board investigators are doing right now, given the fact that they aren't traveling and they aren't really picking up new accidents. Yeah, they're taking preliminary information, but they aren't having to leave their homes or whatever to physically go out there and take time away from the office. What are they doing to clean up that backlog and get these accidents that are old, they're stale, and they may even have safety issues that need to be known? Do you have any idea, at least from the FAA perspective or maybe some of your contacts at the board, what's going on? Are they actually or are they just sitting around enjoying basically a paid vacation? From my FAA friends and colleagues and people that I still contact, they're still working. They're still doing, you know, they're still doing certification projects. They're still putting aircraft on certificates. They're still they're still doing the work that they're doing at home and they're still driving around in the G cars, you know, just showing the flags to people at the airports that are flying, the operators that are flying, you know, that aren't covered under the governor's stay at home order. They're out doing that. From the NTSB side, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I haven't, you know, I haven't talked to anybody specifically about their reports and about their backlogs. But exactly what you said is a significant issue. I mean, we are consistently finding ourselves trying to. We need data. We st- we're starting to work on projects, and we need this information from the original on-site stuff in two and three years ago, and we still can't get it because the cases are the files are still open, and the cases, the final factuals haven't been written, and the probable causes haven't been put out, and it's just making it very difficult. I'm hoping that during this time, I really am hoping that all of those backlogs and all of those cases, you know, they're getting that all cleaned up now. That you know, they have just unrestricted, you know, at home time you know, uh, work time where they can just crank this stuff out and they can get these done and they can get them finished and we can get the final products. John, have you heard anything from your contacts? No, nobody has mentioned a word about that other than that they're, they're home. They share, many of the investigators that I talk to share the same frustrations that we just talked about here. They want to go out. They want to investigate the airplanes. They're not concerned about the contamination issues because they have had the training. And it's just somewhere up on high within the government, they changed the status of non-essential. And I don't know where that came from, whether it was within the agency itself or whether it was higher. Normally, you would think because it's an independent agency that reports directly to the White House, that's too small an issue for the White House to focus on. So I tend to think that it would be more like the, the chairman of the NTSB who put the restriction on rather than somebody in the president's office. What do you think about, have you heard anything about their backlog? When you were there, you know, you knew about the backlog because you got reports about, you know, how many accidents, what was still in, in-house, what wasn't getting out, things like that. On top of the fact that as a board member, you had to deal with the appeal process through the administrative law judges and violations or whatever that filtered through the uh, the law judge's office and made their way to the board. Are they working on any of of that stuff? Do you know? I don't know that it's gone. I made a lot of noise about that while I was there, about the reconsiderations and the timeliness of the reports. At one point, we actually, we didn't. Someone from the staff was assigned to go back and and look at all the appeals process, and they would give us a, a sheet when requested of how many they looked at, how many were changed, how many stayed the same, and how much was in the backlog. So it was just a bunch of stats about the status. I asked that question about a year ago about getting those reports, and I got the 1,000 yards there from one of the board members. Yeah, They didn't know anything about that. So I suspect that it probably, after I left and stopped, the noise stopped being made from the board to see what was going on, that it just sort of quietly faded away. Well, I I just think that, you know, with aviation in a world of hurt right now, again, whether it's aviation or all modes of transportation, safety is still a top priority, a critical factor, and it is an essential service, at least in my perspective, and I just don't understand why, because I, I just know that this is going to have a dramatic ripple effect throughout all aspects of aviation for a very long time, because we aren't going to have the high quality, thorough and methodical investigations to identify potential safety issues that need to be addressed now to accomplish the board's mission, which is to prevent similar accidents from happening again in the future. 
and I'm really concerned. And, and Jason and I, and I know you do too, John, working on the outside now in terms of being an expert witness and doing expert work and the fact that all three of us do training, we provide accident investigation training. How do we send a message that what we do is critical to flight safety, but if you know the government doesn't think that our job is critical, then why even bother? And if you can do things from the desk and get information over the phone, who needs to go out there? I think it sets a bad precedent myself, and especially with trained investigators who do have the skills, abilities, and knowledge to protect themselves from a biohazard and, and respect all of the things that need to be respected while still being able to do their job. Hey, law enforcement is still out there. Firemen are still out there. And so I just don't understand what's going on. In wrapping all of this up, Jason, what do you think? And, and again, I don't want to put you on the spot. I already know what <laughs> what I believe should happen. But as far as the manufacturers are concerned, I know that there are a lot of guys who retired from manufacturers who still have that high level of expertise, but because they don't work for the organization, you know, under the board's rules, they say, well, you got to be a full-time employee. But if the company doesn't have any longer that full-time employee to provide that service, should the board reconsider utilizing that same manufacturer, but having the manufacturer bring back some of their retired folks as contractors so that they can provide that assistance to the NTSB or the FAA so that the quality of the investigations don't suffer. Yeah, that's kind of a topic that you and I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. And I think we've come to one of those paradigm shifts now. I think the way that accident investigation has been conducted over the last 50 years we're going to have to come up with new ideas. We're going to have to come up with a shift. There's an economic push. There's a downturn in air aviation safety departments. You know, employees there, the resources are down. The knowledge base is still out there, but the resources to get there are not from the manufacturing side to assist. So we're going to have to come up with, and that's kind of the brainstorming that you and I have done and discussions that we've had about there has got to be a different method, a, a way that we can still leverage the existing knowledge and the manufacturing knowledge that's out there to still conduct the mission and to enhance aviation safety. The goal is to make the system safer, get the answers, determine the trend, figure out if there's an issue. And there's still people out there to do that. We just have to figure out a different way to utilize it with today's resources. John, what do you think? If uh, you were called back into service after having retired from the airline, would you go back in and do it? Because they they know that you have a high level of expertise. You could be objective and, and provide assistance to the safety board. Of course I would. I can't think of anybody who wouldn't come back and do it. Um, but I just don't think realistically they're going to ask for the help because that would admit that the system that they're using is less than perfect. But, you know, but if they don't, if they depend on the resources of a manufacturer and the manufacturer has no longer the resources. And I mean, we can't, you, you just can't leave it to the, you know, to the, the devices of the, of the safety board. They don't have that high level of expertise across all those disciplines. I mean, what's, what's going to happen? You and I see it now. I mean, the three of us, when we read reports, I use NTSB reports when I teach acts investigation, about the incompleteness, the, the fact that they, they go to the obvious probable cause. Why? Because they didn't do an investigation. And if you take valuable resources away, like manufacturer who can't provide somebody for that subject matter expertise, what's the future report going to look like? It's going to look worse and worse. I mean, we see a lot of bad ones now, incomplete. I shouldn't say bad, but they're incomplete ones now. And that, that trend is going to continue until somebody at the NTSB decides to uh, clean that up. We've seen that in all the modes, too, whether it was railroad accidents or highway accidents. You know, it's a question of economics sometimes, how much money's in your budget. The NTSB has had a pretty good budget for more than 10 years, so I don't think the budget issues are. I think it might be just the will to get in and uh, do it, because it is hard work sometimes. You know, people think accident investigation, you walk around, you kick the tin, and, and you, you get it done. It is not that easy. 
especially when you start following the trail of breadcrumbs back and they they get pretty thin and you still have to find the trail. It's not easy. It's not easy going for the investigators. And, and, and sometimes I think that's why the NTSB has taken the easy way out with the probable cause. They only go far enough to, to satisfy their needs, which is a basic identifying the most likely cause of the accident. But it doesn't really help the industry and the traveling public if they don't go a little deeper. And you oftentimes see that they don't go that extra mile to, to get all the details, all the, all the causes and all the events that if put into the, into the system would get addressed. One of the great things about aviation that doesn't always transcend to other industries is the fact that when we identify our problems, we put our problems right up on the table for everybody to see, we will deal with them. The problem for the investigators and many other people is getting those problems on top of the table. There's lots of resistance for bringing all the negative effects of something into the open air. Maybe they don't want to deal with it. Maybe they recognize that it's expensive and they don't want to go there. Whatever the reason, we need to make sure that all the defects that we see make it into the public domain. I mean, that's why the NTSB has a sunshine meeting where all the decisions are made out in the open. So we wrong recognize that that is something that's beneficial. We just need to push on that more to make sure that all the data, all the facts and circumstances are put on the table so that everybody can see them. And we see the thorough and methodical whenever there's a major investigation, you know, because we've got the team, they go through thorough and methodical, they get into all that detail. But when it comes to, when it comes to accident investigation for general aviation and some of these smaller accidents, we don't see that same level of thorough and methodical and detail and, and those kinds of things, which leads to that generic engine failure for unknown reasons and, and they move on or they don't really get into all of the aspects of pilot operation or the mechanical operation or the maintenance of the aircraft. It's generic and it doesn't serve the industry well. And I just think that the board's going to have to look at how the private sector is revamping the economic impacts that they are going to be suffering. And like you guys said, they are going to have to really evaluate how they can still utilize those valuable resources. They may have to adjust their rules with regard to when the manufacturer says, hey, we don't have an air safety department anymore. We do have these contract folks that used to work for the agents or work for the company. They have this subject matter expertise. They do represent us to provide you with that subject matter expertise. We have to find a way to adjust to this new world because it ain't going to be the way it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Going forward, things are going to change. Actually, what we're doing today was designed back after the Second World War. And the set of procedures that the NTSB investigators use have not been changed a lot since the NTSB came into being in 1967. So those procedures, although they admittedly served us well, they touch all the bases. And if you vigorously address or go after every one of the issues that's in the manual, when you're doing an investigation, it will get you a decent outcome. But the problem is they haven't been looked at in 60 years, and they need to be looked at and revised based upon what we have today, because it's certainly a lot different than what we had back then, especially with all the zeros and ones, all the computer-driven yeah. systems. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, we're running out of time. I love having these kinds of discussions, and uh, we're very blessed to have our Flight Safety Detectives podcast so that we can discuss these issues and, and bring on subject matter experts like Jason, and we really appreciate your participation in our discussion today, Jason. There's going to be future discussions that we're going to have you involved with because uh, you and I are beating these subjects up all the time, you know, <laughs> and so I figured that it's a good way so that our listeners can hear some of our concerns based on our experiences and hopefully there's a call to action i mean we we cannot keep doing business the same way i think this is a wake-up call across the board whether you're in transportation or the medical community or anything else all of this that has happened now for the last two and a half three months 
I think is a giant wake up call across the board for us to reflect on what worked, what didn't work and how we're going to have to see the world differently going forward. I know that uh, John and I are very blessed to be able to bring these types of discussions to our listeners. And if you like what we have to say, you don't like what we have to say, you have comments, questions, concerns, you want to give us your opinions. We always appreciate that. You can always contact us via email at flight safety detectives with an S on the end at gmail.com. And this is what gives us the support to, to address these issues. The three of us on this podcast today are very passionate about aviation and aviation safety. We try to look at all these issues and based on our respective experiences, this is what gives us the opportunity to identify what we think are our issues both now and could be potential issues in the future and, and look at some of the calls to action. To have organizations, companies, people as individuals just sit, listen, and, and ignore it, it's never going to go away. And we're seeing a changing tide. And I think it's very important that through this podcast and others that we identify these issues, see what we can do to enhance and improve the way we do business and, of course, enhance and improve aviation safety. So with that being said, I will say thank you very much, Jason, for being on the show today. And to my colleague, John, who doesn't like to shovel rain, but I hope it turns to snow just because. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Jason, thank you also. And I would like you to start thinking, if you would, about what happens when the engine comes back to the factory, because we've got two shows planned to do what happens when the NTSB sends the engine to the factory the event. One is uh, turbine engines, and I want to do a piston engine. So if you would start thinking about that, and in the next three or four weeks, we'll be back to pick your brain again. Sure, that would be great. And thank you very much, John and Greg. Thanks for having me on. I sure appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to seeing you again in another segment of Aviation Safety. And with that, thank you all for listening. Don't forget to send in uh, emails, questions, concerns, criticisms, and fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.